Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, audio production by Kieran Nemont. And here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, folks, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, where emerging creatives and producers can gain insight from established and respected producers about what it takes to be successful in the TV, film, theater industry, or any industry that has a producer. I'm your host, Curtis Brown, and I am joined, of course, by, if you've heard our new intro, our audio production producer. His oh name goodness. is Kieran Nemont. The name is still sounded the same. I didn't pronounce it incorrectly. Kieran? <laughs> hello, hello. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. What's the weather? What's the weather like in London today? Uh, rainy, cold, and wet. Wow, sound you you sound like a true Brit now. Um, <laughs> actually, funny enough that I say that because I look I looked on our analytics and our analytics have one listener from South Africa. So how how wonderful? Uh, maybe it's my mom. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Both our parents are listening that day. Um, but you want to know something? I looked at our analytics and you'd think that the U.S. would be third. And yeah. I don't think it is. The India is third. We have a lot of listeners from India. So to all our listeners from India, hello. Hello, people. Hello, people. Well, Kieran, I'll say it nicer than Kieran just said. Kieran was very <laughs> underwhelming. If I got off a plane and that was how I was welcomed into a country, I'd be so disappointed. I'd be like, this guy doesn't even seem enthusiastic to want <laughs> for me to want to even be here. Um, but that's funny. Anyway, so yeah, so to all our uh, listeners in India, hello. And I know uh, our producer of the podcast, or our sponsor, sorry, of the podcast is uh, Flying Penguin Graphics. And I know Dan Mackey's holding down the fort over at Flying Penguin Graphics. I know he's a listener. So Danny, just want to say hello and thank you for this uh, Surrey City of Parks t-shirts. Those are flying off the shelves. Um, they're also on Instagram at flying underscore penguin underscore graphics, I think. I completely botched that, but just search up Flying Penguin Graphics and it'll come up and give them a follow as well. Um, our Actually, we, our Twitter has done very well. I think we have 61 followers now, man. We're getting popular on the Twitter, the Twitter yeah, world. I know, man, that's huge. I mean, we also follow like 500 other people, so the optics aren't very good, but I don't <laughs> care. I'm so happy we have 61 followers. Um, our guest today is actually very special. Uh, he's a really great guy. He's very insightful. He's done a load in the uh, film and television world. He's done it. He's been a part of Rhombus Media since 2007. And his insight and his information and wealth of knowledge really comes out in this interview. And you really, you really realize how important timing is in, in his journey, as well as relationships. I think that's how, that's really how he started was through a relationship of someone. And, and you'll hear it, but he explains it a lot better than I just did, but he's a really great guy. And he just had his movie at the Sundance film festival this year, uh, pre pandemic. Uh, and he's had a, a movie release during the pandemic, which is so fantastic. And, and uh, Kieran, so I'll let you uh, take it away. Our guest today is a film and television producer based in Toronto, Canada. He's a graduate of Ryerson University's Image Arts Film Studies program, which led him to land a job at Rhombus Media, where he's been since 2007. Rhombus has released some 200 feature films and television projects, receiving literally hundreds of awards, including numerous Genies, Geminis, Canadian Screen Awards, several Emmys, and an Oscar. Not a big deal. Some of his films he has produced include Closet Monster, which won Best Canadian Feature Film at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2015, Disappearance at Clifton Hill, and most recently Possessor, which had its world premiere this year at the Sundance Film Festival. He is the co-producer on the upcoming television series The Northwater with the BBC, was awarded the Kevin Tierney Emerging Producer Award by the Canadian Media Producers Association, and might have the most expensive phone bill in Canada due to the amount of phone calls he receives from the UK. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Kevin Cricks. Kevin Cricks. 
thanks. That last point is probably pretty accurate. Yeah, I know. Well, even our last our last meeting that we had, uh, you you received a few from the from the UK. But thank God for FaceTime audio, right? Yeah, I mean FaceTime audio and Zoom. You know, it just keeps my long distance bills down. So I'm really happy you came on the show, Kevin. I know we've only met a few times, but it's just such a privilege to have someone as experienced as you are, especially in the film and television world, um, and obviously your years of experience. And obviously, if you search him up on YouTube, you'll see him talking on all the TIFF panels talking at galas he's 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 everywhere everyone so make sure you look him up but something i wanted to i have really enjoyed doing since starting this podcast is kind of discovering how everyone got into producing and it's kind of a nice reminder that there's really no way to do it one way or get into it so i wanted to ask you how did you get into producing yeah i mean mean, i'd be happy to um, go over that story i mean also my experience in just chattering people who um are also in the industry there's no duplicated way it's not like what happened for me will work for somebody else everyone has their own path and it's always so individual and unique um and so i'm also always very interested in how people kind of came at it but in my case um i went to ryerson university uh and you know like i guess growing up and, and being that kid in high school it was just fascinated by film and you know, walked around with a mini DV camera just making movies about nothing with my friends or sometimes just for, you know, for myself. Um, I Film was a hobby and, and an escape for me, a way for me to kind of uh, distract myself from real life um, as a child going through, you know, a lot of different issues. And, and, um, and then it came time as it comes time for, you know, everyone graduating high school where you're like, okay, so what's the next step? Where am I going to apply for university? And it was only at that point that I realized that film could be a career option because honestly, I had never considered it as a career option until I was forced to kind of figure out that next step in my life. And to be honest, I, I, w- I did apply for film school, but um, I also applied for journalism, which at the time I thought was where I was going to go because it felt like the more reliable career Right. To be That's really <laughs> the only reason why. When I applied for film school, my parents weren't thrilled about it. Like they, even when I was in film school, my parents weren't thrilled about it. I think they thought it wasn't the, the most, um, you know, grounded career. And I mean, all all they want for their children is to, um, to know, have stability. Exactly. Um, very supportive now that I have stability. <laughs> And so I applied, I, and, and funny enough, I ended up getting into both journalism and film at Ryerson, and then took the decision to pursue film. But like anybody going into film school, like all I knew about filmmaking was like, I thought I wanted to be a director. I think everybody who goes into film school at the age of 17 or 18 only thinks about directing. Right. The great thing about film school is it gives you that well-rounded education in order to understand all the different pieces and parts that make up the process. And so as it happens along, you know, I tried my hand at everything. And and for the first few years of film school, I actually struggled not knowing what I wanted to do or what were my skills were best utilized, what my strengths were. And then um, in my third year, uh, I ended up producing this short film and, and, and the film did quite well in, in the the student bubble at least. Right. And, um, and it really empowered me to be like, okay, this is what I really like. And this is what I'm good at. And then, but I kind of felt like I was discovering it 
too late. Like this was at the end of the third year of university. I only had one more year left. Right. And so in your fourth year, technically for production, you're only meant to do one film if you're taking on like directing or producing or, um, and so instead of doing one thesis film, I did three, uh, <laughs> I produced, um, like I, I, I did one main one, but then I produced two other friends uh, projects as well. Right. And, um, uh, oh, the, the main, the main reason being like this was my last year and I, I really wanted to like get everything I could out of it. You know, here I was a student having all this access to equipment, all these uh, friends and, and student colleagues who wanted to who'd work on all, all of our projects for free, obviously. Right. And then um, also knowing I could go out into the filmmaking community and leverage the fact that I was a student in order to get things in return, um, which, um, which I had discovered uh, the previous year works. Right. Um, and so, um, so I did that. And then also on top of that, in my final year, uh, I ran Ryerson's Student Film Festival um, with a friend of mine. So I kind of just like wanted to maximize that opportunity. Wow. Um, wow. So in doing that, um, what I did not realize was that uh, a friend of mine who was in the photography program at Ryerson, her aunt was one of the partners of Ramos Media. And around the time of my graduation, um, the main producer at Ramos, Neve Fitchman, um, who's my boss, uh, was looking for a new assistant. And so my friend's aunt asked her, do you know anyone who's graduating Ryerson who you think might be a good fit? And because of everything that I had taken on, she suggested me. And honestly, I heard about the job, went in for an interview and got the job all within 48 hours. Wow. And it happened really fast, was not something I sought out um, and kind of just changed the, the course of my life. Uh, and so I worked as a, as Neve's assistant for three years. Um, and at that point, uh, I had shown a lot of interest in production and was over those three years producing, you know, like the behind the scenes documentaries that we were doing for films. At that point, there was much more of, a, of an audience for those. Like when we would finish those, those would be broadcast on television and right. that doesn't really happen anymore. But, um, you know, I was doing that. I had done like a lot of side projects and, and, and starting to do some short films um, while still at Rhombus and working with Eve. And they created, instead, uh, I guess in the past, usually after two or three years, which is quite normal, um, a normal period for working as an assistant. Um, in the case of Rhombus, someone would usually go off and work somewhere else or find another role. Right. They ended up creating um, a role for me within the company to continue to learn and grow and um, evolve as a producer. I was given the opportunity to, um, you know, bring in a new project called Plaza Monster, which was my first um, project that I was a lead producer on, and right. and you know brought that into the company, made a case on why we should do it, and uh, was given the opportunity to run with it, and and uh, which I did, and you know it was for a first time film, you know it still had a, a nice size budget, but it was under two million, which was um, um, much smaller than the kind of films that we normally did at Rhombus. Right. So um, um, then I, um, as it happens, the film did quite well. And well, it did well, eh? Yeah. That, just one at a just one at the local film festival. <laughs> but it, that that you know the success of that um, allowed me to kind of you know no longer sit at the kids' table. Wow. You know, it's something that I really noticed throughout that was how 
important timing was for you as well as taking initiative, like noticing that, wait, I have all these, this free equipment. I have all these free students. I'm a student. I can use that towards my advantage. And you really took advantage of that, didn't you? And I think that's, I think that's super important, especially for people who are wanting to get into producing or maybe in school, really take advantage because you never know who's watching. And as you said, you had your friend who got asked about the assistant and maybe if you didn't take advantage of all that, maybe that might not have happened. So I think that's likely. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, obviously. Yes. It's hard to say because really I, it, it, you could you could say that looking back on it, but I didn't do that for anyone but myself. Well, of I, course, well, of yeah. course, that's what I'm saying though. Is that you 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 did it for yourself, but it was recognized, is what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, that's that's, that's so so great, and I think that's such good advice. And something that happened in our previous interview was something very similar to that. And I want to say that you've produced around nine short films in your career. And if I'm wrong, IMDb Pro owes me a free year subscription. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, probably uh, that's what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think on IMDb only two Ryerson films are there. Oh, okay. Um, uh, there are more. Um, but I one of them time. was Method by Gregory Smith, right? Which That's was correct, part of yeah. the which was uh, which was part of the TIFF 2013 shortcuts as well. Yeah. So how important? What I wanted to ask you was how important were short films to your career? Oh, absolutely, they were extremely important because uh, I was able to learn on a micro level lessons that would apply on a macro level. So, you know, making those films, especially even at my time at Rhombus, I mean, three short films in my time, four short films in my time at Rhombus, um, that uh, I was able to improve on each short film over that time that would eventually give me the skills and foundation I needed in order to do uh, Closet Monster, which was just an expansion of the lessons I learned. If you, it's, let's say you were listening to this podcast right now as emerging producer of your creative, what's yeah. one thing you wish you knew before you went out into the big scary world of producing? Uh, in, uh, in general or... Um, Could be anything. Could be just anything that you wish you knew. It does not happen quickly. That's honestly the biggest thing is like patience is paramount because, you know, I started working in Rhombus wanting to produce features and I didn't produce my first feature, uh, until almost 10 years later. Wow. I think it, it clicks into the timing thing as well is that it's, it really is such a time thing. Also, if you need to grab any phone call, you can, no, no, it's totally fine. There's the UK call. I'm going to turn this around. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Well, I just think that's so interesting is that it's timing plays such a huge role in so many parts of life. And I guess it makes sense that this would be no different as of that, right? Now at Rhombus, there's yourself, as you said, Nick Finchman and Fraser Asher, or Fraser Ash, sorry. Yes, Nick Finchman, who's the the founder, who started the company about 41 years ago. And then then, uh, Fraser Ash, who started... um, uh, only a couple of years after I did, uh, and him and I have had a very similar trajectory. Uh, we came in from different um, roles, but I think we complement our uh, each other quite well because we have uh, different skill sets that make um, make our pairing uh, quite strong and interesting. Right. And so I, funny enough that you just said that, because what I wanted to say is that filmmaking and almost all creative endeavors are such a collaborative process. And with, that's what makes this pandemic so difficult is because what we do is such a hard thing to do on your own. So yeah. I wanted to say, what do you think makes a successful team? Um, 
That's a good question. I mean, I think the dynamic of each team is very different. And sometimes um, uh, not everyone can click in the way that you would expect uh, right. uh, that to happen. Uh, and I've noticed that even just in who we choose to work with in terms of the filmmakers that we partner with. But, um, you know, I have only had one um, experience working at Rhombus, you know, like in terms of, I haven't worked with other companies. I have right. worked with other companies in co-production settings. Right. But, you know, I think it's important to just find people uh, that just can uh, make you better at what you do instead of make your job harder. Razor and I, we don't fight against each other or we're not resistant or trying to one-up each other. We look to each other as um, support and assistance and, and you know, um, uh, we're just part of a team, you know, we're not... I don't, I'm not sure if I'm answering that well. No, no, you are. You are. It's not a competition is basically what you're it's saying. It's not a competition. Is that you're both on the same trajectory to get to the same place and within this are company, the obviously. Mind and, and, and sometimes there are parts of this industry where people can be very self-serving and, 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 and only looking out for themselves and not for the bigger picture. But I think, you know, something that I've learned at Rhombus and I think why I like working there is it's not really about that. We kind of all have that we're all a team working for the same thing and, and at least within the company want to make sure that everyone feels supported. Right. And I'm sure you get, you guys, the, your rhombus, I'm sure, uh, gets like hundreds of scripts throughout the year. And like you got a script wrapped like fish and the script was called The Boy Who Smells Like Fish, didn't you? That's yeah. like the truth, right? So what are you looking for when you pick up a script? Is there a certain message, a level of authenticity? Like what, 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 what's going to make one stand and out that, from the other and, for you guys? No, it's a really good question. And, and honestly, um, The Boy Smells Like Fish, uh, which we made um, in 2013, I think, or 14. Right. Um, no, earlier. Um, was one of the only scripts we've ever produced that came in unsolicited. Because the truth is the amount of unsolicited material that we get sent is so, it's so substantial that it's impossible to truly review it. And the reason we ended up um, looking at that one is because how we, how we perceived it. It was sent from Spain in a package that um, had a bunch of like fake ice in it. And then the script was wrapped up like a fish uh, in newspaper. <laughs> And then we unwrapped it and then, and like, well, now we have to read this, you know, because of the effort that they put into it. And the script was so beautiful and charming. And it was from this, uh, this uh, filmmaker named Annaline Kelly Mayor. She was um, a first time filmmaker. She made a bunch of shorts, but um, uh, she's both Spanish and Mexican. We actually ended up setting it up as a Mexican um, Canada co-production. Wow. Um, for the most part, um, you know, we, I think on average, I get about three scripts um, submitted unsolicited uh, per week. And so the truth is we, we, we don't read most of what is sent to us. We just don't have the bandwidth. We're five people, two, me, me, Fraser, an accountant, and an assistant. So um, it's not like we have readers on staff. You know, no. we have a, a bunch of projects that we're already actively developing. And then things come in through, you know, solicited uh, sources, like, and by that, I mean, you know, colleagues that we know or people like Correct. come in agents and whatnot, we have to assess that material. So something that comes in through an unsolicited um, source, 
we just don't have the bandwidth. So what they will get, I'm sad to say, is a pretty standard cookie cutter email that acknowledges that we just can't read it. Yeah, well, and and that's to no one else's fault. It's you. You guys have to put your energy into things that you're working on, and you, you know, three scripts a week. I mean, you you just wouldn't, you just don't have time, especially as a producer. I mean, as you say, right? Like, a timing I mean, is. It's, and to be honest, I have a hard enough keeping up with the reading that we do have to read. Well, that's you know, right. When you know, my days are not spent reading scripts; they're they're spent doing work. So right. the only time I have to read scripts is when I go home at night. You know, and, you know, if I want to exercise or make dinner or watch some TV, it's just like, as you need to, in order to unwind from the day, uh, that leaves very little time to read. And then the reading that I actually have to do takes priority. So when am I going to have time to do the reading that I don't have to do? Exactly. And, And the truth is, there's very little of that time ever available. Right. And I think it's important to take that time that you do have that's free to not almost not do something creative, have like something in a totally other thing. Because what I think it does is I keeps, I think it keeps the trajectory moving forward over time as well, I think as well. Um, so you just, you, you mentioned that Rhombus doesn't do a lot of unsolicited, unsolicited submissions, et cetera, unless it comes wrapped in a fish, but, um, <laughs> one time, <laughs> one time. Well, yeah, one time, it was one time. Um, but, uh, Rhombus has done a lot of film adaptations of literary work, whether it's a novel or a play, which is what I've noticed was a common trend throughout a lot of the works that were being done. So can you tell us a little bit about the process of what that, what that takes to secure rights to make a motion picture of a, a literary work? I mean, I'm sure it's very complicated, but even just like a skimmed like version of what, what, that is like i mean it, it, again each um in each instance it's quite different of and course so um um sometimes we have relationships with you know for instance uh, we did a film called last night back in um 1997 i think from mm-hmm. don mckellar and uh following that don for his next film don wanted to do a movie called blindness and so neve and don sought out the rights for that um which was from the author named Jose Saramago. Um, and Jose Saramago was notorious for never uh, giving, optioning the rights to any of his properties. And so it was a, a long, like, kind of journey to get uh, the rights for that, involving, you know, visits to him personally in the Canary Islands. And, and eventually they succeeded in doing that. That movie ended up revolving, in, Don was meant to direct it, but then. He ends up only writing it and being an actor in it. It was directed by Fernando Morellas, who um, you may know did a movie called City of God and another movie called The Constant Gardener. More recently, a movie called Two Popes on Netflix. Um, yes. Um, I think it was nominated for a couple of Oscars. It was, yes. Um, and, um, and so the author was so pleased with how that, um, that movie turned out that um, after seeing it, um, Neve said, you know, I'd love to option some more of you. And he said, "Take your pick." So, like, it went wow. from being you know, completely resistant to um, uh, completely cooperative. One of those novels was called *Double*, um, which ended up becoming *Enemy*, directed by Denis Villeneuve. And so, it all is tied together. You know, we actually at the time had two different novels uh, from Saramago: one called *The Double*, the other called *Death with Interruptions*. And we even wanted to work with Denis for over a decade uh, and they were they were friends and colleagues and he sent, and Denis had reached out um, um, uh, I think around 2010 or 11 saying now's the time. He had just 
um, finished shooting Incendie, which is a remarkable film for those who haven't seen it. And uh, and Neve, and he said, if we're going to work together, we should do it now. So Neve sent him both novels, which we had recently acquired, thinking that he would probably pick Death with Interruptions. And Denis picked the double. And the double, he ended up writing, funny enough, like Denis didn't write it. It was the, uh, the screenwriter of The Boy Who Smells Like Fish that wrote uh, the double. So what we received as an unsolicited script ended up leading to this guy writing Denis Villeneuve's first English language film, which came out after Prisoners, but it was shot before. And now, you know, that, that writer's in Los Angeles doing quite well. You know, I think that's so amazing that we live in in such a big world, but in reality, it's actually so small. And especially in our industry, you know, someone sends you a script that's, you know, wrapped up like a fish and then they end up working for you in another capacity. And it just proves to you that, you know, you have to be nice to everyone and that relationships do matter. Was Saigon Bodyguards based off of something? Was that based off of a novel? Because I know you guys just... No, it wasn't. Icon Bodyguards was an original idea um, right. from a screenwriter named Michael Tai, and um, which stories from him and, and uh, this guy named Ken Ochiai, who was also the director of the movie. We shot this movie in 2015-16 in Vietnam. It was a Vietnamese language film. That's right. Um, that uh, I was in Vietnam for like three months overseeing that production. Wow. And um, it was an incredible experience. It's totally different than anything we've done before. It's an action comedy um, that kind of like, like looks like a Hollywood picture, even though we made it for like 1.5 million US. But wow. money goes a lot, lot farther in Vietnam. But it was for the Vietnamese market. It it did extraordinarily well there. It was released the same weekend as Rogue One and beat Rogue One at the box office. Wow. Yeah. That's like and a so, pretty. That's you know, a nice thing it, to have. <laughs> yeah, it made quite an impression over there. Are you, did you know, because there was an announcement about that. Yes, I know. Universal, Universal is remaking it with the Russo brothers and it's got Chris Pratt attached to it. And yeah, Yeah, I know. That's why I brought it up because I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we optioned, uh, we optioned the rights to Agbo, the Russo brothers company about 18 months ago. Uh, They reached out to us about it, um, which is kind of an incredible thing. We're not involved in that picture other than, you know, giving them the rights to create that adaptation. But it kind of is a really cool legacy for the picture. Absolutely. Especially to have something worth the $1 million, $1.5 to now see its journey be so successful, beating out Rogue One and then now being optioned by the Russo. But like, it's like, you can't really ask for anything more than that, can you? Yeah, I mean, that never happens, so... <laughs> in terms of film, you've been an executive producer, a co-producer, an associate producer, and a producer. So you don't have to choose all three, all four of these. But what I wanted to ask you is sort of how the roles differ. Um, oh, yeah, no, I mean, it's a good question, because I think often I get asked by a lot of people, like, what exactly is a producer? And that's one of the hardest things to answer, because there is no one definition. But, um, you know, because producer often can be... Um, you know, a courtesy credit for somebody who helped arrange financing or, you know, um, is often uh, actors get credited as producer or executive producer as part of their deal. But, um, you know, what I do is a creative producer, but also involved in the actual producing. So, you know, we, um, as a capital P producer, um, we will nurture and develop the creative uh, often our original like ideas or, or IP that we've sourced out. Um, we are filmmaker driven. So we 
we'll find uh, voices that excite us and then develop and package a project around that voice in person. It's, it's extremely rare for us to develop something without a director attached. Uh, it's happened very, very rarely in my 14 years at the company. Um, associate producer as a title is kind of the most um, uh, entry of, of them all uh, or junior of them all. Uh, it is often uh, kind of somebody has done something that merits some sort of producerial recognition, but, um, but it can kind of fall anywhere on the spectrum. And often um, um, it's kind of just an acknowledgement of, of a greater co contribution to a project. Um, Co-producer is often quite involved in the, the main producer roles, but, um, but not quite um, in charge of them. Do you know what right. I mean? So yeah, yep, that like makes sense. A hierarch hierarchy thing. Hierarchy, yep. Um, the cat, on a, and this is all within the, the framework of feature film, I should add. Um, yes. And then the capital P producer is the, 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 you know, the driving force of the production, which I like to think of, I, and I sometimes explain as kind of like a guardian of it in some way. And I'll, sometimes I'll use the, the metaphor of like, you know, a shepherd who has to take, um, you, know, um, you know, his flock from one place to another. Right. And, and make sure that he'll collect all the pieces that go from one, from part A to point B. You know, so one piece is like the script and the other is the cast and the other is the finance and the other is, you know, the, the crew and all, you know, he'll slowly make sure um, all those pieces are in place. He needs to protect them so that right. one doesn't go off and deliver it to the other end intact and he's responsible for it all. So that's essentially what producing is. Uh, it's wearing a lot of hats and it involves a ton of diplomacy. Uh, and, um, and, and so uh, that's a big, a big part of what I do. And, and, and the short answer to that is I, a lot of what I do is a lot of things. <laughs> you know? And then an executive producer can sometimes be meaningfully involved, but often might not be. So, you know, that could be like studio heads or distribu distributors. It could be cast. It could be uh, financiers. Um, um, it's hard to say. Uh, it could be somebody who's kind of more of a mentor role and advisor. Right. Uh, um, and, and uh, you know, even like on, you know, Claws of Monster and uh, Disappearance at Clifton Hill, Neve Fitchman, my boss, took an executive producer credit on both of those. Even though he was meaningfully involved in both productions, he wasn't running point on them. And so, uh, you know, he, he was the one who's like, I'm going to take this role because I'm more of a mentor in uh, uh, on these projects. Right. And can you explain a little bit about how, because you've done a lot of television and obviously you have the North Waters in, in post right now. Um, what I wanted to ask you was sort of how producing can be different in the television world to the film world. So it's a bit, the only real difference there is um, how credits relate to writers in that scenario and also how a producer and EP credits are, are, are regarded. So right. the, I thought, while on film, you know, the best credit you can have is a producer. On television, the best credit you can have is a executive producer. Um, and so, um, and co-producer credits are often given to writers. Um, in the case of our project, The Northwater, um, our, our writer and director, Andrew Haig, 
is also an executive producer. Um, and while I would normally take producer or co-producer credits on films, on The North Water, uh, I'm a co-executive producer. So which is preferred in that model, but a credit I wouldn't usually want on a feature film. Right. Okay. That's interesting. That's really that cool. It all it's a no, 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 it does. It is complicated, but that's why I asked you because I think that's one of the main things a lot of people go, what does a producer do? I feel like people think it's the Monopoly guy that has cash running out of his pocket. And I think, yeah. as you said, it, it, it can part, possibly be that, but it's not really. It's more of a shepherd. That yeah. And we never wants. put our own money into projects. I mean, sometimes we have to defer our own fees to close a gap, but that's different. But like, you know, we're not a funding agency. We have to go out and find the funding and put that funding into the pictures. And that's probably one of the hardest things to do too as well. Yes. Although I'd say the hardest thing to do is casting. Oh, really? Yeah, by far. And why do you, why do you say that? Um, it's just a, it's a big challenge right now because your money is tied to your casting. It's, uh, without fail, uh, no matter the size of the production, the mo- any money that comes in that is at all tied to performance in the marketplace um, is tied to whatever cast you have attached to your picture because that's the currency in which they will go out and sell your movie. And it used to be a little bit easier um, at a time when um, Netflix didn't exist, uh, at a time when uh, there was a bit more of a taboo between film actors doing television projects. Um, but, but the world we live in right now uh, is very different. You know, you have A-list stars doing television and getting paid a ton of money when they would ordinarily do uh, have a one-for-you, one-for-me mentality. So they would do the studio picture and get paid a lot of money, but then go do the indie picture and not get paid a lot of money, but get that creative, you know, itch scratched. Correct. Uh, and and now, you know, the, the level of cast that we often need in order to finance our pictures we can't, we can't get access to. Right. Wow. That's so interesting. I think you spoke about this a bit at the next gen catalyst for change in Canadian mm-hmm. storytelling. I think this is, I've heard you speak about this and I'm, I actually have a question, two questions actually based on what you've just been speaking of. So I want to yeah. get back to that. But uh, right now I want to play a game called radio play. Uh, and it's basically, we get to know Kevin Cricks, the person rather than Kevin Cricks, the producer. Ready? Sure. Yeah. All right. This is radio play. What time do you wake up in the morning? 7.30. Favorite film? Run, Lola, Run. Current favorite song? Oh, God, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Hard Uh, one, I know. uh, uh, Probably something from Jason Mraz. Uh, Current favorite show? Uh, I just watched The Queen's Gambit. That was incredible. The most famous person you've met? That's... uh, I don't, how do you I, how do you measure fame? Um, Julian Moore, Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark. Oh my Gullo. god! You're like um, you're like. How do I measure fame? I'm just gonna list. Let me go to my A list section. Yeah, I was more famous. <laughs> yeah, true, 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 true. But in yeah. that realm, let's say um, biggest pet peeve. Um, biggest pet peeve. I hate uh, when people pronounce frustrated frustrated. They lose the R. Really? Do people yeah. do that? All the time. Wow. I'm shocked at that. People people don't say frustrated correctly? That's so they interesting. Say frustrated. So it's frustrating to hear you say someone say frustrated. Yeah, um, frustrated. Yeah. Do, what does a person need to be happy? Uh, friends and family. Do you believe in love at first sight? No. 
Have you ever broken a bone? Uh, just fractured, Kev? Sure. Um, would you rather have more time or more money? Time. If you had the world's attention for 15 seconds, what would you say? Um, the election was not rigged. <laughs> you can grab dinner with anyone, living or dead. Who are you getting dinner with? Um, Barack Obama, maybe? It's a good choice. Okay, last question. Do you believe in aliens or ghosts? Aliens. Yeah. All right, that's Radio Play. I believe in that too, by the way. That was yeah, really fun. It, that's a really good... You kind gave... of start judge people who don't believe in aliens because like the universe is massive. It's massive. Like, how do you not? It's the same people yeah. that are like, I do, that don't like dogs. I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know exactly. if I trust you. I know. I get you. That was... that. You had some really great answers to that. Did I? Yeah, you did. And it's so funny because our last out of four guests, well, now five, you're our fifth guest. But we've had two presidents. One was uh, Bill Clinton and someone had yeah. met Joe Biden. So I'm oh, like, no yeah, so we've had some really good like people meeting famous people. But um, I wanted to kind of get off of uh, what you were saying previously, just before yep. we played radio play, which was obviously, you know, we're in a global pandemic, not to date the podcast. But the first thing that, as you said, everyone does was watch Netflix, Crave, Hulu. And there's more and more streaming services coming out, which means more content needs to be produced to fill these services. So my question yeah. to you as a producer, how has this affected your job? Um, I mean, uh there's so much um, being made for those networks. And at the same time, it's impossible to infiltrate those networks, right? So like it's to knock on their door and get them to, to kind of listen to what you're selling. It's almost impenetrable. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter. You know, a lot of people assume that casting is easy for us because we've been around for so long or, or, you know, the, the, the projects that we made that have some notable names attached to them. Uh, even though like, I remember casting Vinny Villeneuve's film was one of the hardest things we've ever done. Uh, um, you know, I've had projects fall apart because we can't cast them at the right level. Wow. Uh, and, and even more recently, that's happened a few times. Um, it's, it's really, really frustrating with the darn. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, um, where is it going with that? Um, and the problem is it's devaluing um, what it means to make a theatrical film because the more people that um, are consuming uh, content on streaming sites, uh, the less they're going to theaters. And the more, especially coming out of this pandemic, are people still going to go to movie theaters? Because the way that we put together and finance pictures um, assumes that these films have that level of monetary value to, to offer, right? And if we remove that thread in that that layer, the value of the films that we can put together and finance and 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 and, um, and sell is now smaller, and so um, we require there them indie filmmakers, whether in Canada or states or around the world, require the theatrical model in order to put films together at a certain budget size. If if theatrical disappears, that's going to unbelievably hinder what we can do. Wow. And I think that's, and, and this actually segues really well into my next question, which was at the next gen catalyst for changing Canadian storytelling in 2018, you were a panelist for navigating barriers to authentic storytelling. And you said the traditional model of selling a movie from territory to territory is becoming less reliable. So is yeah. that what, is that what you're sort of meaning by that? What you were just saying? Uh, yeah. yeah right. Because the way that a sales agent would go out there, uh, you know, often what they'll try to do right now is, is get like 
uh, a world sale from like a Sony or from a Universal, whoever will often do that to, to you know, um, buy and, and sell to all their different, you know, um, sister companies. But what traditionally happens uh, is they go out and sell like it's an a la carte model, almost like, you know, look at each territory as its own, um, it's like buying real estate, right? So they'll try to like sell uh, each territory uh, the product, the product, product, and then get those sales, which should um, accumulate into whatever the, the investment should, right? They should offset each other, right? Uh, but um, but that model, like the value that, is, that territories pay per project, you know, every time I go to market with something new, it always surprises me how much it's lower than I expected. Wow. And, but you, you were lucky with Possessor because you guys actually had it in, in theaters and it's actually coming out, I think again in November in Canada. Is it in Canada or in the States? So uh, right now, if the film was released, um, in October, October, that's uh, right. It, uh, it theatrically, um, in Canada and the United States. And it was an unusual time to release a movie, obviously because of the pandemic, you know, and then the week we were releasing, um, it got a sizable release in Canada, but the week we were releasing, um, the day before released, Quebec shut all their theaters down because of new spike, case spikes. And uh, and then a week after um, it was playing in Toronto, Toronto shut down their theaters as well. So it hasn't been, um, um, you know, the best circumstances by any means, but the film has been very well received. In, in the U.S., it's already out on VOD. It was released uh, November 3rd, um, um, election day, as you know. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, now, that's right. Um, and in Canada, we'll come out the first week of December. On so wow. I'm hoping that the film will be you know, more widely seen. Yeah. Circumstances. But, um, but overall, all things considered, we've been extremely pleased with its performance. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I, I sent you an email with a, a guy that I work with. He's, 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 he's so particular and he wears the same shirt and it's a horror movie shirt and he wears the same jeans. He wears the same thing every shift for five days a week. And he literally, and I was telling him about, because he's into filmmaking and I think he went to Ryerson as well. And he was like, yeah. And I saw Possessor and I went like, Hey, you want to know something as I just spoke to that, the producer of that. And he was like, (laughs) well, make sure you tell him it's, it's a good film. And that's how he talks. He goes, Oh, it's a good, great 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 film. And he, he was a big fan. And I was like, it must be good because this guy loves horror movies. Like it's all he wears. So uh, pretty funny. But the last question, some people have been surprised uh, because like it has been, you know, portrayed as a horror film. Uh, And also extremely gruesome. I mean, in the States, it got NC-17 rating, uh, which is why it's called Possessor Uncut um, over there. But, um, you know, from my perspective, it's it's more of a drama with horror elements than it is a horror film. Like, if you're going in expecting Scream or, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or or even like like Saw, you're not going to get that. Okay. It's a very human story about um uh family in a lot of ways that um has some pretty intense twists and turns yeah well i i you know i've seen the poster i couldn't get myself to watch the trailer i usually try and watch as much as much of it i can but i literally won't sleep for a week so that's why i i I, I, I don't know if it's scary not scary Uh, no it's just more it has graphic elements at points but it's not okay okay 
Okay, great. Well, in my opinion, it's not scary. Well, I'll watch it, and then when it's four in the morning, I'll be emailing you. Um, sure. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, my last question I wanted to ask you because I've taken up uh, enough of your time today is that what's your job's biggest challenge today? Um, I guess just you know, not giving up, and not, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just like things take a long time. Uh, Possessor is actually a really good example of that. Possessor, we started writing in 2012 and it came out this year, you know, and if, if you're looking for films to, you know, be a quick journey or process, you're not, you're not in the right business. You know, um, it, it's, these are, are each, they each have their own challenges and their own, um, um, you know, mechanics uh, and, and, and um, you just kind of have to be able to, remain patient and not give up on them and, you know, believe that they can get made. Wow. And I guess that's probably why you have so many tasks going on at the same time, so many different projects so that. Yeah. I mean, I think right now we have about almost 10 features in different phases of development and about four different series. Wow. And that's just to offset if one takes from eight years to do as if one takes two or three years to do is that is that the main priority we always try to develop three to four years in advance um okay and i think you never quite know which project will happen when and so we don't necessarily prioritize one over the other we try to they're almost like children you know it's just like i love all my children and right. so um uh you know naturally because when one of them started or commenced they generally tend to like fall within a certain time period, but like possessor, you know, we wanted to shoot like four or five years ago and, and it only happened, you know, we shot it like two and a half years ago. Right. And, um, and so you kind of just have to, in a lot of ways, roll with the punches, patience, diplomacy, and just kind of endurance. I think, I think, I think that's the perfect way to end this interview is to walk away with those three words. Kevin, you are so great. You have such great insight. Your experience, obviously, I mean, your resume speaks for itself. You're so fantastic. You're so kind. You're so generous. I really appreciate you coming on the show and leaving us with with your words of wisdom. So thank you. And we'll uh, speak to you soon. This has been a Brown Stuff production. 